whole thing. And for contemporary events, he has been an expert witness in the various class action lawsuits involving U.S., FTX, and the Voyager class action lawsuit. And this is uh, launched by the Moskowitz law firm. So we are really going to go into the rabbit hole today for the legal and regulatory implications that we are facing in this space, both here in the U.S., in the U.K., and in Europe. And we have the best expert, in my opinion, to help us navigate that. So Dr. Kestel, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Adam, thank you for the invitation. It's been a long time brewing. When I first met you back in Barcelona, we were shared a very interesting panel. Uh, yes, almost, we did. Uh, almost as the crypto world was kind of disintegrating outside the window. Right. The very day, I right. think. Right. As it was imploding. Yes. You know, and, uh, we have to be very careful when we have a meeting together because you never know what will what the uh, you know the, the the celestial spheres will decide catastrophe is going to happen out there sure <laughs> maybe but yeah so let me say thank you very much i'm very uh, happy and privileged to be here and to talk to you and to, to your listeners and viewers uh, i should just make three little caveats first of all i'm not a lawyer at all i've been involved in it disputes for as they say past three decades so i think i know quite a lot about it and the law particularly disputes over software systems but of course i'm not a lawyer um, secondly, therefore, and I, I wouldn't anyway, give any kind of legal or indeed financial advice. Uh, so make, make that clear. Any of my comments are intended not as advice. Always go to a true professional Absolutely. and get proper professional uh, coverage. Uh, and thirdly, with regard to the specifics, which we might talk about, the actual Voyager and FTX and now Binance and the NFT Shaq O'Neill um, class action as well, uh, in which all of which I'm involved uh, as as an expert witness with the, as you said, the Moskowitz Law Firm in in your place in Florida. Um, yes. I can't necessarily talk in detail about those, but I can hopefully say something that might be of interest. So with those caveats, let's fire away. Perfect. And yes, and just you know, just to reiterate uh, to the audience, nothing discussed, disclosed, or analyzed here today constitutes any type of legal advice, uh, you know, to be, you know, to, you know, to be used or sought one way or the other. So whatever you do here today, it is a commentary and it's a discourse between two professionals in this space. Two, so, two so we're just chatting. Yes. <laughs> right. We're just chatting. We're having, you know, listen, we're having a, a conversation, uh, you know, about relevant things. Yeah. And listen, this could be almost you know, something I, I, you actually, might... I also want to add, since we're going to be talking about crypto and in, and therefore investment, as it were, uh, I because I am an independent expert professional, I make a point of not getting involved. So I'm not invested at all in crypto or indeed in anything very much. And I don't have any financial interest in any crypto company or exchange. I come at any particular project or matter that's brought to me entirely with an independent mind and do my usual expert thing of looking or gathering the evidence, analyzing, making findings, deriving conclusions, and hopefully providing a helpful opinion, which always in a litigation concept is as a primary duty to the court, is to help the judge in the court, irrespective of who's uh, retaining me. Anyway, again, that sounds very boring, but we ought to, I ought to make my position clear in that. Absolutely. And uh, I think I think that makes things uh, much easier. And you could almost say uh, safer for I guess you could say what we shall be covering today. 
So, you know, to start at the top here, I guess, you know, going from broader to narrower, what is going on right now in Web3 blockchain in, in as far as much as what regulation is going to look like soon? So, you know, kind of, you know, opening with this big umbrella, you know, type of question and, you know, topic to be posited. What is that going to look like? That's a, that's a excellent question. I think everybody has their own ideas, and um, none more so, as I see it, than the the particular regulator, which let's say it's the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC in the USA, and of course the oversight of them by the Congress and congressional committees, some of right. which uh, proceedings I've 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 looked at it live with rapt attention. Actually, it's been extremely good entertainment, apart from anything else, if I may put it that way. Um, so, if we look at that, I mean, the USA and what they are doing with the SEC's recent um, drama of activity, flurry of activity, is is kind of leading the world in many ways down down one particular path. There are other things going on, obviously, all around the world. The European Union and the European Commission are doing some uh, advanced things with regulation and have already passed this thing called MICA or MICA and yes. are looking at now and uh, enacting an AI law quite, quite rapidly. They've seen so um, that, I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly expert in those areas because it's developing so rapidly. But um, in terms of the effect on uh, from the banking regulator side, let's just divert to that for a moment. I have done some analysis on that quite recently for, recently for a case I was involved with, um, because when you start peeling away and looking at the banking system, really very traditional banking system, that itself is being exposed as it was, you know, during 2007, 2008, as hardly exactly robust and safe. Um, and, uh, you know, taxpayers have had to bail out the banks once and with the banks that have been associated with crypto, but not just with crypto, that have failed in the first quarter of this year, Silvergate, etc. cetera. Uh, S, um, uh, what was the other one? Not Silvergate and the other one was even more so. Um, and several others have have failed, not necessarily because of their exposure to crypto, but if you like, just bad banking, bad treasury management. So. There's a there's a number of interweaved uh, regulatory developments happening, or look as if they ought to happen for better for better arrangement, a better structuring of the investment side of this industry in the future. You said Web three and blockchain didn't even mention investment. Uh, I'm not so sure that there is going to be regulation um, across the piece governing all of that technology it would be very difficult to do in the same way as i think it's going to be very difficult to regulate ai it's computer software and if they wanted to regulate computer software they should have done it when the first accounting package was was installed because that put people out of jobs and it made people more profitable i mean that's when you needed to start and that was 70 years ago now so it, it that ain't gonna happen i don't think so but if we now come back to just the sec and look specifically, I know it's not looking at the broad overview, but there is a very specific thing going on with particular crypto products and services. Um, and we, you, you, I'm sure you can give the litany of names of exchanges, platforms, tokens, coins, investment products that have all featured and are featuring day by day um, 
that are now being exposed as having an allegation made against them. This is the common allegation that they have promoted, traded and allowed to facilitate the trading of investment in by ordinary public members. That's the point. Not 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 specialist professional investors necessarily, but by the ordinary public in certain products and services, investment products and services, which are now being said to have always been, it's not something new actually, investment contracts as defined under something called the Howey test in the USA and under regulatory, therefore they needed to be, always needed to be under regulatory purview and oversight of the SEC in particular, but also some other regulators, the CFTC, the banking regulators have all got involved now. But that's, that's the core common allegation that many of these products and services and even the exchanges themselves come under the, the proper legal analysis of being involved in investment contracts which therefore require them to be registered and regulated by a regulator, normally the SEC. And that's certainly the basis of most of the SEC actions. It already has been, as we know, it's not as, as if it's new. They, they already brought actions against some over the past two years. Most of them have settled quietly with large fines or agreements, set of penalties being paid. Now they seem to be set on doing it wholesale across the piece in as much as they can when they are US registered entities. That itself is an interesting one because most of these big names are international and they're, I mean, Binance prides itself on being nowhere. Great example. It says it's a DAO, whatever the heck that is legally. If you speak to five right. different lawyers, you get five different answers. Oh, <laughs> sure. So um, the SEC is endeavoring at least to do it on behalf of what they would say is protecting the US investor that's the point it's all because of consumer protection that's the, where it all starts from uh, and the sec is doing it. and indeed uh, the class actions which are not necessarily directly against exchanges because the the muscovitz law firm very quickly saw that ftx itself ain't going to have much funds i mean i personally would be surprised if any investor or indeed other creditor of ftx eventually when it's when all the accounting's done and all the recoveries are made is gets if it gets a cent in the dollar back i would be I, I would be surprised but that's my personal view i don't know i'm not i don't have any inside information so the moskowitz law firm correctly saw that although they are also in the claim as a defendant ftx itself and all its subsidiaries and sbf samuel bankman fried as well freed fried as well he's there but but the the main action is against the so-called celebrity endorsers and this brings another level of uh, of liability because it is established under under u.s law uh, and it was made clear it was made clear by the sec back in i think 2017-18 in a way that maybe other things haven't been made clear by the sec that's a different discussion but but they did make clear that anyone that endorses an unregulated investment in an unregulated security is themselves liable and they have what's known illegally as strict liability which is a higher a much higher standard of liability so if an investor does can make the case they've been defrauded or or uh, uh, they become a victim of a, of a dud investment, let's put it in that generic terms, they don't have to show that Celebrity A was the reason that they invested. Celebrity A is strictly liable anyway to all investors. 
they don't have to show a direct causal link. That's the difference, as I understand it, between normal legal liability and strict liability. Right. And, and by the way, just to uh, further impact strict liability. So strict liability is effectively, regardless of your intent, the mere act or participation, or you could say the mere, the mere action of, you could say, what is required to make one culpable under a law or a statute makes you responsible. So there is no, oh, sorry, this was an accident. Or, you know, hypothetically, oh, sorry, I accidentally, you know, was a celebrity endorser and spokesperson for FTX. Like, there is no, uh, there's no specific scheme or intent you need, to, or specific intent right. you have to have in your mind. The fact you've done it, is it. it doesn't matter whether right. you did it intentionally or with, with malice or accidentally or just because right. they happened to pay you $15 million, you thought, well, now, why not? <laughs> right. <laughs> thing happened in many cases. Um, I mean, what's also interesting, I think is Taylor Swift was one of the uh, high profile celebs that was approached. And she, I think it may be because her father's a lawyer. I don't know. Uh, she actually looked at it and thought, no, I've done my due diligence. You know what? No, I don't think I'll do that. Thank you very much. So if one almost that also proves that if one or other celebrity could look at it, do due diligence and decide not to do it, that almost strengthens the argument that, well, why couldn't? Because these guys are are very rich, I understand, and they have accountants and big law firms advising them all the time. So if some, if some, uh, if some uh, due diligence had been done, you may have found they might have taken a, a rather more uh, careful view of the thing. Right. Very, uh, very that, well that's, said. That's the argument. I mean, my point is that that it's coming back to the the the, the critical legal point that is going to be tested whether it's SEC or the class actions, the, 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 the motion, there are motions for summary judgments on this very point for the class actions, which I think are still going ahead. I haven't heard the latest on that up to date, but yes, uh, is to get a judge, a court to say, yes, we do agree that that particular product, and, it, and one of the focuses is on the so-called yield-bearing account of FTX. It's like a bit like a bank account. You put it in, you're supposed to earn interest or other coins or be able to stake that is so much like a normal investment contract. I, I believe, and I've given opinion, that it's almost a slam dunk. That has certainly got to be an investment contract under the Howey test and other, and other precedents. But we're waiting for a court um, uh, opinion, a judgment on that very issue as a preliminary issue, I think, both for the SEC's claims and for the class actions. That, that has been raised in other actions, but because the actions have been settled, there's never been a court judgment that, is, that has endorsed that. I, I don't, I'm not aware of one. So it's interesting. Right. There's not a ruling on a material fact or something along those lines. Yeah, the, um, the, uh, the betting, I think, I, if one wants to put it that way, is that many of these cases will settle, that the people, either the exchanges or the celebrities, won't want to go to full trial. I don't know. And so it may be that we still end up in a year's time with a lot of settlements done, but we still don't have necessarily a judge's decision as to whether this crucial issue as to whether a particular crypto exchange product was or is a, a secure, an unregistered security under the Howey test and other, other legal analyses. And that is a very great point as well that you have mentioned is that many of these court cases have been getting settled and by virtue of getting settled, there isn't a judge's ruling or decision on a material fact, or you could say disputed 
material uh, disputed you know material legal issue on these so part of me thinks is that if many of these are settling this is going to end up being history repeating itself with the next kind of ftx type scheme that exists there and listen i don't mean to be a bearer of bad news but i think history will repeat itself in this regard un unfortunately and if these matters are just settled and i understand why parties do settle for one reason or the other but unless there is a clear legal precedent as to what these things are within the definition of unregistered securities, this is going to be a very difficult road ahead. You're absolutely right. And just let's paint that scenario that we may get through all the current crop. And uh, I mean, the crop is still growing, by the way. We haven't seen the end right. of it. I'm pretty sure the SEC have got more coming. And without giving anything away, I'm pretty sure there will be other class actions. Um, uh, the, the, the one we I just threw into the pot at the start, this this latest one, which again is by the Muskowitz Law Firm, on a, against a company launched by Shaq O'Neill and his son, I think, to promote NFTs, still making the same basic legal allegation that an NFT is as much an unregistered security as any other let us call them generally data objects because that's what they are. This is what's in a way slightly amusing. Right. We're talking about right. a bunch of, bunch of ones and zeros on a server that all this industry, why we're talking together is because there's these little innocent ones and zeros sitting on servers and somebody dreamt up that they were worth something and managed to convince somebody else they were. And off we went back in 2009 with the first bit. I love it. I like the way you conceptualized it. Yes. <laughs> Um, and I, well, I mean, I've, I've spent it, part of my uh, expert witness work is occasionally to give valuations of software and data. I've done that. We did a huge, a huge case for the inland revenue or against the inland revenue on an investment in software products. And part of it was, was giving an independent valuation when it was in the hundreds of millions. And I had to do quite a lot of research and remind myself there's about six or seven quite different ways that are accepted by accountants, by forensic accounts, of how to value software and data that's grown up over the past 40, 50 years. And what we did for that case, we did two or three different ways to, as a matter of seeing if we got a consistent answer. And we did. Um, and when blockchain came along, I thought, well, hang on, what's, what's, what's the value of a few blocks of data on a blockchain? Well, surely it must be the cost of producing it. Uh, that was about one or two or three dollars at the time it may have gone up now because of the electricity um sure. and maybe there's a handling charge and a commission and a profit margin ten dollars let's say that seems still to me actually to be the rational valuation of a of a bitcoin block on a blockchain why should it be, why should it be anything else where where is the economic model that says it should be anything else there isn't one it's wholly speculative and therefore it's gambling and interestingly when we started talking about what's the future for regulation, recent in the UK, there's been a Treasury Committee of the House of Commons, the MPs, that have come up with quite an interesting report where they are recommending to government that what they call, and there's another terminology they're introducing, unbacked digital assets, that's the term they're using, i.e. pure cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, stand out, that's 95% of the market, let's face it, 
They say right. they should be they should be regulated going forward under gambling regulation because that's all you're doing hmm. when you put money into a Bitcoin. It sits there and you hope to get more money back. It's a hope. It's like putting a going into a pokey and pressing the button and hoping the seven sevens come up or whatever. It's sure, really right. just gambling. You're not doing anything else. The Bitcoin isn't doing anything else while it's sitting there in between. It's not going to be invested in a company or buy goods and services or fund somebody to go and pick pick strawberries or anything. It's just sitting there. There's ones and it was ones and zeros, and it's still ones and zeros. And you're right. just hoping somebody will pay you more for it than you paid when you put your money into it and pay the other person down the line. I mean, that's it. It's completely what I call a vacuous asset. It doesn't do anything in an economic model sense. And most people will agree with that. It's entirely speculative. So I can see some rationale for, for regulating that activity under gambling regulation, which you do have right. to register for. It's very tightly controlled. But get this, they do allow the gambling um, companies to make vast profits because they're only, they're only mandated to give, give back a certain amount of the money. I mean, it's, it's a weird industry. They actually have a license, literally a license to print money. Um, so it, it, it fits better. The whole, the whole um, cryptocurrency investment, particularly in what you might call pure cryptocurrencies, or what the Treasury Committee calls unbacked digital assets, um, fits, I think, far more comfortably under the gambling regime. And I, I can't see why anyone in the crypto industry would object to that because it's not it's not going to stop people gambling. There's a whole discussion in right. the UK about whether advertising of gambling should be stopped. I'm saying, yeah, why, why is there still advertising? Why do they allow football companies to have gambling, betting, gambling people around the edge of the football pit? You don't need to advertise gamble. People want to gamble anyway. It's the one industry you really don't need any advertising for. The only reason they get the advertise is they want to get market share from each other. And they want to capture new youngsters into the whole thing as well. Right. A, bit like, a bit like smoking, but let's not talk about that. Um, so I don't know what you think of that. I, again, the whole of the crypto world to, to, took, to, took against the Treasury Committee scathingly. But again, some other more sober lawyers I've seen and other analyses I said, you know what? That is actually rational in a way. And if we if we hived off that bit as under gambling, we'd then be able to look at the more serious side of investment in what you might call utility tokens, stable coins, uh, asset backed tokens as part of the regular investment community, which should also be regulated, just like investment in stocks and shares or in bank certificates of deposits or commodities or whatever. Right, that's right. Right. And, and listen, I think in many ways you, uh, you, you've, uh, you've, you've explored and started to explain the next points to, uh, I guess you could say, leave my mouth on this, uh, on this subject. But I will say this, you know, as it comes to Bitcoin and let's just talk about Bitcoin for now, but, but, I could understand the rationale and even appreciate the rationale as far as placing it under either like a gambling or gambling related, you could almost say regulatory body, you know, subject matter jurisdiction, you know, for that. And in fact, in many ways, I would even argue that there are many facets uh, that exist within the Bitcoin ecosystem that do resemble gambling. And I think as many, if not almost all of us know is that, you know, over time, you always lose against the house. 
So, and if you look at the situation with Bitcoin, uh, understanding how much of the circulating supply of Bitcoin is effectively controlled by the quote unquote whales of the industry. You know, it does, you know, and listen, you know, there is nothing to stop or prohibit whales from like, you know, forming a cartel, doing pump and dumps and things like that. So, you know, in in many ways, it was a fair argument to even posit that they do act as the house, you know, you know, maybe if not directly, but functionally, it, it does feel that way. So when whenever you open the news, and I think, as we all know, crypto, especially Bitcoin, is quite volatile. A lot of these rug pulls almost seemingly come out of nowhere. But, you know, I don't really believe there's much coincidence when it comes to these, you know, when it, when it comes to these things as well. And I think given the fact that, listen, this isn't a equal playing field. You have really a handful of, you could say, um, very wealthy uh, parties that control the supply of this. And I think they have certain intentions and certain plans where, listen, you know, the price is very high right now, but I also want to increase my market share by making a dip. So what do we do, you know, ladies and gentlemen? And, and that's why you have like a lot of these things. So in many ways, you could even say the whales are the house in, in, in this space if we're, if we're going to compare it to a casino, because that is objectively how I would perceive it, in fact. So it's more than a more than just a fair argument, more than just a logical argument, you can well, yeah, and if it a very strong case under, that can be built around it. If it were brought under a gambling regulator's purview, in the UK, that would be the Gambling Commission and all the regular uh, betting and gaming companies have to be registered and they have to be licensed and they're quite tightly policed. Their books are audited. They have spot checks. They, they do make huge profits. They spend a lot of money on advertising. Um, the whole idea of free spins and free this and free that to get people hooked on it. Um, so if these whales, and that's why we're getting the cries of, 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 of pain, if it were sure. decided, look, if you're going to continue to be a Bitcoin investor, then you have to register. Regi- that's antithetical to the whole point about cryptocurrency. Right. Its anonymity right. is one of its big selling points. But, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to stay outside the law and be anonymous or are you going to come inside? Still make a lot of money because it's gambling. Nobody's not going to say you're not going to make a lot of money. But you can't. But right. then, then, there will be, then there would be legislation against market manipulation, as there is in other forms of the more regular investment industry. People still get away with it. But when they get away, when they get found out, they get huge fines and sometimes go to prison. Not as often as they might, one might say, but, but they do. Um, so what's what's bad about it from a from a, a normal citizen consumer's point of view? Sure. What is bad? What what could possibly go wrong about bringing Bitcoin and other? Let's use their terminology. It's a very clumsy terminology. Unbacked digital assets trading and con- for consumers. I'm not necessarily saying for professional investors. That's a different. Uh, let's we talk about it separately. But for consumers bringing that under a gambling regulator. And therefore, that would be a wholesale re-registration, know your client, anti-money laundering, all that stuff on everyone that's, well, you might say ever traded Bitcoin, but certainly anyone that's currently holding any and trading it. They'd have a duty to disclose it and to go on a register that they are registered Bitcoin owners and that they are going to, that they're going to gamble and get Bitcoin. So you even, you even license the gamblers in that, situation 
maybe even to to be right. a consumer and do it for the first time you need to get a license because otherwise it's anonymous you can't you can't regulate an industry that's full of anonymous people doing stuff so that that's right. i think why there's been a cry of shame nobody's nobody said that very much but it's a very the very anonymity which of course let us be frank has fueled the whole um black market um funding of of, of bitcoin in particular for money launderers, drug traffickers, vice traffickers, and now sanctions avoiders. Um, we know that for sure. Uh, there was some news this morning about um, uh, the, the European Union f uh, fining, um, fining, I don't know whether it was banks or who it was, because they have been assisting in, particularly Russia, avoiding uh, the sanctions. Right, and that's how they've been getting yeah. around it through Bitcoin. Yeah, getting around it and similar, similar situated cryptos. Yeah, than crypto. Um, so yeah, it's been response that very anonymity, and even the people that do some really tricky, fancy, and I'm in colleagues with two or three of them, blockchain forensic tracing. You only ever end up at a wallet and an address. Uh, you don't really know. You might even know where that address, what server that's located on, but that can move tomorrow. Uh, but, um, you know, you might um, to find out who actually owns that address, owns that token in a legal sense and where he he or she is or it, if it's a company, is located in jurisdictionally legally is you have to do what's known as off chain, good old sleuthing work. Um, sure. So, you know, it's um, it's 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 created a whole new. Uh, ecosystem of crime, basically, Bitcoin. Let, let's be frank about it. I'm not right. suggesting that everyone involved in it has criminal intent, but let's be frank. As other studies have shown, I mean, billions, uh, billions have been defrauded, billions have been scammed, and it's also been used for um, black black market economy um, financial transactions. Let's put it as generally as that. I don't think we can avoid addressing that. Right. Uh, I think uh, one I think would hope future regulation would address that, but it's going to be difficult. Right. And, you know, one of the things that has to be addressed and resolved is for Bitcoin, what is its potential to harm the public? And, and you know, and I think you've already touched on, you know, many of these facets of it as well as that. You know, I like to think of blockchain and especially when it comes to Bitcoin, it's uh, it, although transformational, it's also full of contradictions as well. You know, it's a transparent ledger, so to say, of every transaction. But at the same time, you don't know who these people are. And there's no duty and there's no mechanism to really compel anybody to reveal their identity. So, yes, you could trace transactions. You're going to get essentially a series of digits and numbers, and which, for, for, lack of, uh, for lack of a better term, are almost completely meaningless. You know, like I said, you know, it is on one hand transparent, but contextually or functionally, it's not transparent at all. And as far as the capacity, you know, to harm the public and you could say, you know, crime, you know, things that come to mind or, you know, drugs, money laundering, you know, everything and anything, you know, relating to beyond or, with, or within that. And that is something that is only going to be aggravated or it's only going to increase over time unless it is properly addressed. And, you know, to your point, too. It's not like anybody who's ever had, you know, bought or sold a Bitcoin is going to have to be, let's say, under 
the thumb of some regulatory agency or big brother, so to say, you know, as many, let's say, in the community are, are worried about. But it does seem like this for something that for something that is, listen, an unbacked digital assets or you could say an unregistered security. Let's say if we're to use those terms, this is something that does transcend and operate beyond borders and, you know, regulatory bodies. So, you know, the harm, or I guess you could say the potential for harm comes in at, you know, when it comes to either parties or individuals. Well, who owns the lion's share of this or who owns, you know, some of the, you know, some of the larger amounts of Bitcoin in circulation because they can manipulate and control the market that way. You know, those are really the parties you have to worry about. And there does have to be a mechanism to address that because these are going to be the type of things that, you know, are going to crash entire economies. And the crypto economy doesn't exist in a vacuum either. You know, these do oh, affect yeah, everything. And every that's several points of that. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. No, no, uh, please. I think, um, I think the part of the motivation for the current SEC actions in particular is because of the data they're now getting back about the criminal activities that right. cryptocurrency, let's just say generically, but in that I don't include really good projects in the blockchain space that really got nothing to do with Bitcoin and um, you know speculative investing. But let's just right. call it cryptocurrency. It's become overwhelming, the data that is now, it's been, it's been around for the last five years, but suddenly a lot of it because of the Ukraine war actually, and what Russia is doing with cryptocurrency exchanges. That's what I right. understand. I mean, I'm privy to other data I can't talk about. But um, right. and I think part of the rationale of SEC and other US authorities, you know, the usual suspects, let's say, are getting very concerned about. And that's possibly why they are saying, look, it's time for a cleanup. As, as Gens uh, Gary Genzer said, he's simply now looking to regularize the non as he calls it the non-compliant sector it's a compliant a sector that should have been complying isn't okay maybe he's been late in doing it but i suspect beneath the sheets there's a there's a rationale there saying we need to get this more sorted out because we want to address the points you said we want to address these whales we want to address the criminal and um anti-us state and uh, cyber security issues about certain other states using these using these uh, platforms, A, to defraud our citizens, but B, to use it to circumvent the, the regulated international banking settlement system. Let's put it that way. Uh, you see the crypto evangelists don't like the international banking settlement system. They think it's part of this deep state, global control, control right. uh, you know, plan. Well, guys, you know, are you, what, what are you a citizen of? Are you a citizen of the US or the UK or? Right. France or Germany, what are you? You can't be a world. Unfortunately, we all have this idea. I'm from the 60s. We're all global. You know, it's a global village. Marshall McLuhan's global village. We're all citizens of the world. Yeah, that was a nice idea, wasn't it? Right. I mean, <laughs> as I say to people, right. when, you know, your country, you're a citizen of a country and another country decides to invade you and you haven't got the wherewithal to defend yourself and you call on the treaties and it involves, oh, here we are, the USA. Who's going to come in and save you? And how are they going to pay the soldiers? They're going to pay them in Bitcoin. They're going to pay them in US dollars. Get real. Right. The people that are going to come in are the ones with the largest, strongest, technically proficient army in the world, i.e. the USA. 
thank goodness it's a Western democracy, may have faults, they all do. Um, Bitcoin ain't going to come in and solve you. I've said to several people, maybe the whales should do this. Get together, buy an army, buy some nuclear weapons, if you're even allowed to. Go to countries all around the world and say, offer a treaty. If you will, uh, if you will agree to have Bitcoin as your fiat currency, we will enter into a protection treaty with you. And if anyone does anything like a NATO, like a Bitcoin NATO, <laughs> and right. we'll come in with our funding and protect you. You know, if you can that if you really want to make Bitcoin the important thing you think it is, then do that, because that's what it comes down to at the end. It's people's security and safety. And Bitcoin ain't providing that at all. It isn't even thinking of providing it. And that's, that's what a a financial, good, you know, that's what the financial system based still on the, the 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 tangible practical reserve currency, the US dollar provides in the world does it shakily and it does it under attack and it does it with its own internal squabbles and internal, you know, <laughs> faults. Every democracy has them. Boy, and the USA has gotten writ large, but it's it's still there and we are still relying on it as, as humanity is relying on it. Would you rather it was the Chinese coming in back by the Renimdi and the Yuan or what? Sure. I don't know, maybe you would. Maybe in 50 years time, that will be a non, the question I'm asking would be nonsense because we know that India the Asian countries generally will come to dominate the second half of this millennium. And um, oh, sorry, even the century, not the millennium. I'm talking about the century. Uh, and it will be a different. You won't, The question will start looking a bit odd as to whether you want the US to come in and uh, protect you, because by then, maybe China has taken over a lot of Africa already. May China and India together. Interestingly, India is the world's largest democracy, quite very close to China physically. Sure. Right. Completely. Population just right under completely different in philosophy so who knows but anyway as we speak now and probably for the rest of my lifetime maybe even yours you're still looking at an american soldier basically coming in standing on the parapets and defending you if something goes wrong they may do it badly they may not have a good policy of what to do when they go right issue right (laughs) right of course if there's a bitcoin army can come in and do that then i'll start believing bitcoin is of significance in the world as a currency because it isn't because legally it isn't a currency no no law anywhere except a few odd countries have said it's legal tender it's not a currency it's not money at all what it is we don't know but (laughs) by the way and that's the second point i wanted to make Uh, interestingly if it go if this goes the distance that the the point is made and it's confirmed by the court, they don't all settle and we get judgments, which do confirm that all of these products and maybe even the tokens themselves, although I do have a difference of opinion on that one, are indeed investment contracts under the Howey test and are unregistered. This is under US law only, it'd be different in other jurisdictions. Then it then poses the question, well, what about Bitcoin itself? Because, of course, Bitcoin has introduced these Bitcoin ordinals in the last couple of months where they're specifically saying there's now a way of linking actual physical assets on the Bitcoin blockchain. So suddenly what I've been calling a pure cryptocurrency, a vacuous one. Ah, oh, hang on a minute. It's not Bitcoin itself. It's a Bitcoin ordinal, but it's on the same blockchain and it's essentially the same product, Bitcoin, with, with a couple of variants within it now. Well, hang on a minute. If it's linked to a real asset, doesn't that then become open to being alleged as an unregistered security? So Bitcoin itself could have actions brought against it. Uh, And I can't give anything away, but it would not surprise me if such an action were not 
particularly against Bitcoin ordinals. Um, now, if you, if you do that, and here's an interesting thought, when uh, the previous, you know, FTX, I'm not sure whether it's bigger than the uh, Madoff Ponzi scheme. I, I believe remember. it is actually, yes. Is. This is okay. one event well, that exceeded it, yes. The previous largest scam that's collapsed was the definite Ponzi scheme of Madoff. Right. And um, there was a superb Netflix three-part documentary on it quite recently. And I was reminded, and I'd forgotten, that when the liquidator came in, I wish I could remember his name, because he actually retired a billionaire simply out of the fees he earned on winding right. up the whole I know what you're talking about. You know you probably who you mean. Um, when he came in, he said, you know what? It's my duty to recover the money from whoever I'm entitled to recover it from legally. And hang on a minute. There are tens of thousands of innocent mums and pops out there that invested with Madoff that made fantastic returns. They sent their kids to college. They bought houses. They did retirement funds. They bought yachts. Entirely unsuspecting, entirely innocent investors. But they got paid ridiculous returns from Madoff very nicely right. for several years. Had nothing but good to say of him. Hang on a minute. Those were illegally made returns. And again, under the same legal thing, the fact you didn't know they were illegally made doesn't stop the fact that if you if it can be shown you have received illegal funds, you have a duty to return it. So he took quite he had to go to court to get the um, principal endorsed by the courts. But he then took action against thousands of innocent investments some of whom then went bankrupt, some of whom committed suicide, some of whom had to sell their houses to repay the returns that they'd received from Maddox. And by the way, they were also under the class of creditors because they'd lost their original investment as well. So they were both they were both owers of money to the liquidator as well as being creditors. But he was pursuing them. And I think he got something like six to eight billion dollars back from the in total. And there was an enormous fuss about it at the time. But no, the law was a law. And if you make money illegally, now let's look at Bitcoin. The first Bitcoin gets put on a block by this mysterious Mr. Satoshi. He says it's worth something. Why did he say that? Who? Yeah, go run along, go and, go and do another bit of software. Why would anyone believe him that it was worth anything in real money? They did, apparently. So it would seem. And somebody put some money in it and then they sold it. Another one gets mined and so on. He had this brilliant idea of mining something which got less and less and less as you went on. And you had a, a total supply. So he he contrasted it with the normal currencies where you don't have those protections. So suddenly everyone gets very evangelical about it being the new form of currency. Everyone piles in, they buy it, but they also sell it. So every time they do a transaction, they are endorsing that false premise if, if it's now said this should have been an unregistered security right from the start, every time you buy and sell a Bitcoin, you're in, essentially endorsing that un, sale of an unregistered security. So I can't see why, if somebody does bring an action against Bitcoin itself, again, who would they bring it against? It's not actually owned by anybody. There's right. no company behind it. But anyway, they'll find a way, I'm sure. Um, won't they have a duty to actually take action against anyone and everyone that's ever traded in a Bitcoin? Because they have endorsed an unregistered state of an unregistered security. I can't see why not. Logically, I can't see a fault in that argument. Maybe difficult to do. And there may be reasons why you don't right. want to do it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right. I'm because it's, oh, no, it's please. This is great. Like a movie script in my mind. <laughs> well, 
it's funny you mentioned a movie script because you could almost say the uh, the origin story surrounding Bitcoin is like a well-written drama as far as a book or a play or or even a movie. So it, it seems it seems there's almost something risque for a lot of people to participate, you know, in that market. And in of itself, you know, un, unless it's just one big mystery to everybody, but Bitcoin does not really does not have a practical use case other than the fact it is a store of value and just digital currency within itself. So, you know, it's not like Ethereum where, where yes, there is, you could say, a certain supply and demand for the individual tokens, but those tokens are also used for legitimate programming processes on the on the chain. Yeah, or they can be anyway. You know, you can create decentralized applications from it. You can create all different types of things based on, let's say, the amount of tokens that you that you own. And, you know, Bitcoin is this weird binary, you know, to kind of double back a little bit to that reference. It is somehow everywhere and nowhere. It somehow represents values, yet it represents no values. And, you know, you mentioned. Yeah, Adam, it only does that because people wish to believe it does that. The minute right. somebody says, oh, hang on a minute, they blow the whistle and the emperor's suddenly discovered with no clothes on, then it will vanish overnight. People will switch off the electricity because nobody wants to trade in it anymore. Why, why did they want to trade in it in the first place? It's only a store of value because somebody put some value into it in the first place. But why did they do that? I mean, that, that's right. a puzzle. That's a puzzle. Well, you could say the same thing about a painting or a block of gold. It's not quite the same because you can do other something with gold and you can enjoy a painting. You can sure. frame it. You can paint over the top of it if you want. I mean, yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. It has utility as does a bar of gold. Bitcoin has right. absolutely no utility other than to be. So as I as I said in my paper uh, article in the Journal of Fina World Financial Review, year whatever it was, year maybe two now ago, in my my article I Bitcoin, which was a an emulation of a legendary Leonard Reed article about I pencil, where he it's a legendary article in 1958. And I contrasted the production of a pencil, which he said was showed the invisible hand at work, the economist's invisible hand. And the point is, nobody in the whole fantastic production of a pencil from taking the wood to etc. Thousands, tens of thousands of people get involved in creating this amazing thing called a pencil. And yet nobody either really wants, and none of those people wanted a pencil, and um, nobody nobody told them to do it. They're just doing individual two-party contracts under the law, selling their goods and services, which ends up with it going into a factory and making a pencil, which will probably still be around long after Bitcoin's gone. People will still want a pencil to sketch things with and create with. So if you contrast the way that I, I, the Bitcoin gets created, it's entirely vacuous. There's no, you know, a few people can know how to mine, mine a Bitcoin and you don't need a whole infrastructure of people to create it in the first place. It's entirely vacuous. It's an, a non-event, really, of creating a piece of software, creating data on a server. That happens, you know, trillions of times a second on all kinds of different... The, the actual coding is no different. You couldn't distinguish it looking at the coding or the ones and zeros that you could from any other piece of software. It's a jet done on general purpose computers, and sometimes they're made to optimize the particular functionality, but there's still a von Neumann architecture, as we call it, general purpose digital computer, 
right, running a piece of software, creating data on a server. That's all. It, that's all it is. And then somebody decides that's worth something. And it's called a store of value. It's only a store of value because somebody decided it was a store of value. There's no economic <laughs> rationale for it. And so it, right. can easily, it can easily become not a store of value as fast as it became a store of value, it seems to me. You know, there's no reason for keeping it in existence. What is the reason for keeping Bitcoin? Right. It's almost like the greatest. Uh... Well, tough on you. Who said that's a good reason for having something? You know, right. It's almost like the greatest you know, game of telephone ever played, it seems, because it's like somebody somebody created this rumor. And then, you know, as as one person pulled the next, this thing geometrically grew as far as what a, as far as a story. And then as perceived value, which, listen, for every effective or tangible purpose is largely based on nothing. And you mentioned a good point before when it comes to currency. Now, I think if we can be fair here. We could say, or look and say, we could critique, could say the various policy or history of, let's say, of the world that was created after World War II, where it's a very U.S., U.K., Western-centric democratic framework that is both, you could say, both a system and an ideal, an aspiration for, you know, the, the rest of the world. But currency does attach a few other things. It represents the strength of the military. It also represents values of, you could say, the nation uh, that, it, you know, that it comes from. So, so what I would posit to anybody, and I think the benefits of having, you could say, a free democratic society is that we do have, you could say, you start, you're frozen. Uh, you, know, well, you, you know, based you, on. So you frozen right. for a minute. Okay, you're back again now. Say that, say that last bit again. Okay. Right, right. I was, uh, I guess what I was saying is that currency, you know, beyond just, let's say, for buying things, it represents the military, but it also represents the values of the culture. Yeah, you got as far as that last time you frozen again. <laughs> I'm sorry. You completely Wait. frozen on me, both sight and sound. Oh, now you're back. You should have. Is that better? That's okay. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, double back to a point that you made about currencies. Yeah, don't, you've and got you as far as say, saying it represents values. It was a bit after that. that uh, right. Yeah. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, so, you know, whether you take the U.S. dollar or the British pound, other than the fact it re represents economic or even military might, it does represent values as well. And I think that is a very important thing for people to consider. Because, listen, you know, I, I think one of the benefits of having a, a – you could say a transparent, as at least as much as one can practically have, a transparent democratic society is that, yes, you know, bad things have happened in history, but we also have the freedom to criticize it and then correct ourselves, you know, going, you know, going forward. And I'd like to pause this question to anybody, you know, how do you feel, let's say, either a Russian or Chinese dominated global economic system? Will, will play out for the rest of the world. And as far as Bitcoin, because in many ways it is borderless and in many ways it is valueless as far as a tangible defined set of either ideals or aspirations. So does the power of Bitcoin determine on, well, who has the biggest wallet in it? And then what happens? Okay, so listen, if you know, we hope that may be a good person or a good sovereign nation or a good group 
would, let's say, be in control of that Bitcoin. But listen, if not, then what? Then how is, let's say, Bitcoin weaponized, you know, against, you could say, people, people across the world? And I do wonder if, let's say, tomorrow, uh, Dr. Castell, you know, there's some sort of big, you could almost say, leak, or you could almost say some big hack when it comes to Bitcoin and the wallets that it is associated with. So how would one feel if, let's say, it is a, let's say the main whales, you know, as to go back to our term before, what if the whales were effectively the People's Republic of China, the Russian Federation, and you could say the various, you know, cartels across Central and South America, you know, responsible for like, you know, fentanyl and, you know, you could say, uh, you know, human trafficking and, you know, and, and exploitation of children and women, things like that. So I don't want to live in a world where, let's say, if I invest in Bitcoin, I'm also simultaneously buying into something that goes against my my own morals and ideals, but also funding my own self-destruction at the at the same time, too. Well, that's my point. The um, you said the values, the values as we have now seen in Bitcoin, they may have started off with some wonderful philosophical and uh, financial sure. um, structural ideas, uh, with the good intent of creating uh, a new currency. Unfortunately, it isn't a currency, uh, a new currency that didn't have some of the glaring problems of the, as you just described it, the post-war world of, uh, and then the gold standard that came off and the, the great right. British that's no longer great, uh, the US dollar, which is still great, um, but for how long, et cetera. Greatly diminished and, yeah, for how yeah. long, uh, how long the, will, will it stay great? The, the, the anti-double spend, the anti-forgery, the, um, the, well, the anonymity was, um, was, <laughs> was put as forward as a great thing but as we've seen all that has done is as, as appealed more to the bad hats rather than you know the black sure. hats rather than the white hats i would agree with you so that i mean if you want to look at the va- the values the social and moral and philosoph- philosophical values as the bitcoin world as you so described it probably dominated by a few whales some of whom may be uh, states with whom sure. we are we are um, legitimately uh, concerned about, then that those are the values. Is that those yeah. are the values of that community. And every time somebody buys a bitcoin, they like well, some people buy stuff and they turn their back on the fact that's a company that's employing child labor in China. But you still want to buy the cheap clothing from them. So okay, we Absolutely. all do it sometimes knowingly right. or unknowingly. But if it's quite clear that that's all you're doing when you're buying and selling a Bitcoin, then doesn't that say something about you as a person? Uh, and you're quite happy for Russia and China and other a few other states who may be the whales. I don't know. I've not done that analysis. Other people have, and I'm sure they come to similar conclusions, but I can't independently verify that. But um, uh, do you really want to be supporting their power? That's what, so that's a very good question you've raised. It's not something I particularly study because here's why. As I often say to people, what would happen if somebody turned a switch tomorrow and just Bitcoin vanished? It never happened. And you're just left with the people holding their Bitcoin who think they are worth what they thought it was worth the day before, but suddenly right. they're not worth anything because you can't trade them anymore. Uh, would, would, any, would the world really notice for more than a couple of days? It wouldn't. I mean, the total value of Bitcoin, let's talk about Bitcoin in particular, it's 95% of the market after all. 
is still only about one week's worth of trading in pork bellies. One one commodity on the world exchanges. <laughs> right, I, right. I, mean, I, I recall not, when you and I spoke about that, yes. It's a few trillion. It's a few trillion. That's all it is, the whole of Bitcoin. It's a few trillion. I mean, it's not even in as much as a week's worth of uh, MasterCard and Visa payments in the USA alone, right. I think. They're massive. And that's just in one week, or well, let's call it a month. I don't know what the actual figures are, I'm, I'm, but I know I'm in the right order of magnitude. I may not know the exact up-to-date figures, particularly with the depressed um, Bitcoin prices right now, which are like a, a third of what they were a year and a half ago. It got to about 75. It's now 25 or maybe even less now. I don't know. But if it went down to zero tomorrow, would I lose any sleep over it? No. Who would lose sleep over it? Yes, a few people would. But they're like a tiny two or three percent of humanity. So what are right. we all getting so excited about? Is my point. So don't well, get too worried about the fact that whales are commanding Bitcoin because they're they're playing at something that's a very little impact in most of humanity. I mean, a good half of humanity, Adam, spends five hours a day just trying to find fresh water and bring it home. That is life yes. for about half of humanity on this planet. I mean, it, what's Bitcoin going to do with that? You know, I'm sorry, but um, one is how's Bitcoin get... resolving that either? Well, it's not resolving because no, there's no mind behind Bitcoin. It's not owned by anybody. I, I had this idea. I don't know when I even wrote to them that if what should happen is a nation state like the U.S., if it really wants to bring adopt a cryptocurrency and bring bring it into the fold of proper regulation with trusted third parties under the rule of law, should basically, yeah. basically pass a law where they make an offer to everybody holding Bitcoin at a price and say you have until 30 days to accept this offer. After that, at least under US law, anybody caught trading in Bitcoin will have them confiscated and will be declared illegal and you may go to prison. I mean, get tough in one country, but we're willing to buy them off you and take it in as part of the US currency. That's, that right. could be one, it may, may cost a lot of money, but not in the long run. And then they right. could do what they wanted with it. They could cancel them all if they wanted to, or they could say, hey, this is a good a good basis for a central bank digital currency, which we might get on to talk to. Because I see the impact of a CBDC, because that's going great trains now in many different countries. Yes. Uh, I see the impact of that on the average citizen in those countries far more than Bitcoin will ever be. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, um, absolutely. Absolutely. I've got, a, I've got a, a concern about that, particularly the BOE strategy on it, which seems to see it as an actual retail digital pound, uh, rather than what I think is its, is its natural positioning and a good rationale as an interbank settlement device, which is improves on what they've got already. And a lot of the bit, there's, a, there's a, a new European initiative to do all of that. And I think that's the real reason um, but they're talking about it's not decentralized. The Bank of England is going to have a centralized register, so it's certainly not DLT. And they're going to try and sell everybody the idea that they need another little wallet. They've already got MasterCard and Visa. By the way, Visa, I think a month ago, they published results in the UK alone. It's now responsible for over 50%. I think it's by number, not necessarily by value, of all retail transactions. That's everybody buying apples in a store, buying a newspaper, buying whatever. Visa is now responsible for over 50% of those transactions. Checks are almost dead and people are not using cash anymore. 
Now, in fact, if right. we've already got a digital pound, it's called a Visa card, effectively. That, that's for sure. already more than 50% of our... This is just the UK. I don't know what the figures are in the USA. Um, but the they seem to still be intent on the idea of introducing a new digital pound to the average consumer. And I'm saying, I'm a, I'm a systems guy. I listen to that and say, did you go out and ask anybody whether they even want it? Has anybody woke up in the morning and thought, do you know, what I really need is a new digital pound, otherwise my life won't be complete. I don't know a single <laughs> person has thought right. that. So right. I mean, do your thing for your own interbank, your central bank stuff, your interbank settlements, your, um, uh, you know, completion of transactions. I've even suggested that they actually just pirate on the back of the visa system, improve it, reduce the latency, reduce the costs of transactions. They could do a fantastic thing then, actually make that the, the, the UK digital pound, a Bank of England version of the visa system, and it interfaces neatly with it. That would be, that's what I would actually advise as a systems person. If you wanted to introduce a new retail digital pound, great. Let's let's see what there is already. Why are you thinking of doing something completely new out of the blue when no one's asked for it? I don't know what you think about that. Those are those are very very interesting points. And yeah, listen, uh, I, I'll try to I'll try to take those uh, one at a time. But something I wanted to dovetail off of you know what you said. I think when you kind of described as you know Bitcoin really I- existing outside of every and all traditional systems, what what I like to think of Bitcoin as in the scope of, you could say, medieval history, it's like the uh, the free companies or it's like a, you could almost say like a mercenary army. You know, it exists outside of the law. It is steered, you could almost say, by the highest backer. And other than you could say money for money's sake, there isn't a clear, you can almost say, doctrine or guideline or value that, that operates, you know, within this. So listen, you know, it, it's, it's great to have, you know, you could say mercenaries. But, you know, if you're on the other side of the sword or the, or the gun, you know, in, in that regard, uh, the the capability of harm and damage is is great. And by the way, this isn't to say that necessarily, you know, the Roman Empire were, you know, were essentially a a land and, you know, a, a land f- filled of uh, saints and do-gooders. But, you know, there is a tendency where mercenaries do eventually bite the hand that feeds them over, you know, over time. And, you know, listen, that could be for good actors and bad actors. But the fact of the matter is, if really the only buy-in for, let's say, steering Bitcoin is essentially to buy in or buy it, uh, you know, what, what happens if you are, let's say, on the opposite side of the V when you're against, let's say, nefarious parties and powers, let's say the Russian Federation or the Chinese and whatever vision or aspiration they have for a, you know, a, a global you know, a global financial system. And I would say to anybody, I would posit to anybody, this isn't necessarily me trying to make the argument against Bitcoin, but this is really the argument to be honest about it and where it could really go. If let's say unrestrained, or if if really given carte blanche as it is to operate as it is, because things are not going to necessarily act by themselves to make things better necessarily. No, it's going to be it's going to be probably traveling to the places where, you know, it shouldn't be. And when you mentioned central bank digital currencies, you know. It's 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 very, very fascinating, uh, to say the least. And if there is going to be, let's say, a leap towards mass adoption, you know, because I, I think effectively for people who are 
really passionate about the technology, you know, uh, and, you know, we're taking just Bitcoin out of this. But if, if you're if you're one of these people and you're of the mind that you think decentralized blockchain technologies can improve the world and be a force for good, you know, to, you know, to essentially reach the unbanked. I mean, hell, even address, you know, the fact that half the world is malnourished and, and doesn't have access to, you know, a, you know, a, a water supply, you know, something like a decentralized ledger could essentially provide a framework to improve those problems. So, you know, I would, I would ask myself and anybody else, if there is going to be mass adoption, what is going to be the mass message in mass methodology to get us there? And I think for anybody who's, let's say, I think in the more deeper conspiracy theory camp of like, let's say Bitcoin, Bitcoin maximus, maximalists, and listen, um, they're a part of this ecosystem I just don't want anything part of. I don't even want them as my viewership. I've said that many times because a lot of them do act like nuts, to be honest. But if, you, if you're thinking of mass adoption, what is going to be the vehicle to contextualize people's life, lives the fastest? We talked about CBDCs, which has, which has uh, great potential for that, you know, making things more cashless or you could say more convenient. Listen, it's also going to have implications for improving the environment. That's going to be less uh, smelting of various ores to make coinage, you know, less processes to, you know, you, know, you could say make, you could say uh, printed inked paper. So there's going to be some benefits in that. And you mentioned the MasterCard example. If we already have the framework, you know, to do things like that, to onboard people, as they say. If we have the framework to onboard entire cities, that is something that, listen, let's not reinvent the wheel. I think we already have a wheel. We could just make a better wheel. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, your point about mass was very great, in fact. And that's I'll what it means. I mean, I don't, uh, I'm not sure that's the way the central banks are seeing it, uh, but um, who knows? The, um, and and the point the other point is they don't necessarily need to use blockchain either for no they don't um and that's still an open question for the boe i think for the bank of england i'm not sure whether other countries are already committed to a blockchain architecture because a blockchain architecture again as i've said many times it's old school it was old school when it was invented and it hasn't right. hasn't changed this is a fascinating thing i mean it's been what 13 14 years now that's about three generations in any other it area uh and yet blockchain still trundles on as a blockchain um i was designing linked list databases back in the 1960s and 70s okay we didn't have a network we didn't have a consensus mechanism because you couldn't communicate with everybody and we didn't have encryption but the actual understanding of a linked list via hashing key database goes back to the 1960s and 70s and that's all that blockchain is, with the addition of it being networked over the internet and this consensus mechanism for, for writing the data in the first place, plus the fact it's all heavily encrypted, um, which, by the way, will probably be blown apart when quantum computing comes along any time in the next five to ten years, maybe sooner. But then let's go Oh, there. that would be a great episode <laughs> in of itself. Other to people have written on that, and they're already saying, oh, no, they're already designing anti-quantum computing blockchains and anti-blockchain, anti-quantum computing encryption systems. There's people working on those already. Well, trust me, anything you can design that's anti, somebody will be doing an anti-anti one as well. That's the point about right. computer software. There's no such thing as cybersecurity. There's no such thing as reliability. Gerbil showed that the only thing you can say about computer software systems 
is that they're definitely uncertain. Mathematically, that's all you can prove. And von Neumann architecture, which is an open architecture, just shows it. That's why we have this amazing IT industry. Anyone can sit down, write a bit of software, launch it, can do something useful and become a trillionaire. That's why, because it's an open architecture. But that's also why it's totally unreliable and totally uh, unprotectable. So the two things go together. So the whole cybersecurity industry, which is about a trillion dollars strong, probably, is, a, is based on a false premise in the first place. But again, well, that's a discussion for another day. Um, but let's go back to CBDC and and what and the fact that, that there are good projects. Let's let's leave aside Bitcoin and and investments sure. and, and unregistered securities. But I would just say, in sort of closing that one off. Um, the, what I now know about all that and where, where I can give advice, I'd be very happy if anyone wants to contact me. And by the way, hopefully you'll distribute my contact details. Yes, absolutely. To discuss. I've published many papers in this field, as, as you know. I'm always happy to discuss with people. And, and I can, as a consultant, now advise companies, maybe those in the crypto world or maybe those thinking of doing something with a crypto token, not necessarily an investment uh, registered securities, but there's stable coins and there's utility tokens, which do offer some quite interesting use cases in society generally. And I, I've got one of my own, which is this uh, QE2 coin, which is minted as an Ethereum token, which is sitting there doing nothing at the moment, which right. was the idea of having a creating a whole new e economy, e ecosystem for the to fix the shortage of housing stock of starter homes in the UK. And I envisage it as a as a government-backed stablecoin. But get this, I envisage it as in, what I call intelligent money. It would be money because it would be have the Bank of England behind it. But unless you spend it, it will become valueless. It's distinctly not for investing. It's for spending and creating economic value systems. Good stuff for people, houses in this case, people to pay the carpet layers, to pay the window installers, to pay the carpenters, etc. And, right. and accelerate that as an ecosystem on its own with its own token, which if it isn't spent, you find becomes valueless. So the incentive is to get out there and get it back into the economy. The velocity economies re rely for their efficiency on the velocity of circulation and money. And when that goes slow, that's when you get recession and depression. And um, that's what, how I envisage it. So that's kind of model within what I call intelligent money. You can put algorithms into the money in a way you can't with printed money. Um, right. And, you know, people are saying, well, they're going to do that with CBDCs and the algorithms will be checking every pound when they'll be snooping on us. Well, yeah, OK. But look at the potential of smart money and smart wallets and smart transactions. Generally, that's a fascinating area. And uh, I think that's where we might see some very interesting projects in the we're using blockchain and indeed enhancements of blockchain with smart contracts and even what you might call super blockchains with other systems uh, integrated on the top of them. So it's not just a pure blockchain. There's some very interesting ideas there, which could really be very transformative, highly efficient, open up all, all kinds of new goods and services, the ability to uh, integrate different services. When you start adding AI to it as well, which we maybe don't have time to get onto this time. I'd like to have a whole other discussion about that sometime. I was then gonna... you've really got some very exciting possibilities in the real world, not just investing in something that's a vacuous coin that you hope somebody else will pay you more later, which doesn't do any any economic or social utility in the meantime. I know I'm not I'm not particularly interested. I find that very boring, frankly. 
um, as I do find most of financial investment when it's just making money from money. Um, right. Talk about investing, investing in real people, real economies, real projects, real risky projects. Venture capital is fantastic. And US have got an amazing industry. It's taken a bit of a shot recently. So yes, sure. the idea of those projects, but here's a sober thought, leaving aside the whole investment. Again, I, don't, I haven't seen any studies, but anecdotally, I've, I've heard that um, if you look at all corporate blockchain projects, right? These are companies that are thought, oh, there's a new platform. What can we use it for? And the IT enthusiasts have said, well, it's doing all this. Look at it. It's got bit, you must have heard of Bitcoin. Oh, well, okay, let's have some of that. Let's put together a project. We'll fund it. And some of our business, we'll try and see whether we can blockchain it in some way. That's usually the way around it goes. It's not like, again, a company wakes up and thinks, oh, what we really need is a distributed ledger, a distributed ledger. Well, you never had a distributed ledger anywhere in this industry before. So why do you think you suddenly need it? But anyway, so it gets sold as it's the latest techo wizzo. And therefore, somebody, you should have a go. So they get money to do a pilot project or a proof of concept or something. I understand that it's less than 10% of all those projects that have gone on and been funded beyond that first throwing money at a pilot project. You know, by and large, blockchain has been funded and has been tried, but nobody really wants to take it any further. And you can see in systems terms why that is. Uh, which we won't go into now, but there are analyses of it published. Um, interestingly, you and I both met Dr. Craig Wright at that same bar. Yes, we did. And I had a, the first time I ever met him, and I had a perfectly good conversation with him. And he gave his own presentation when he said his, his um, objective with his N-Chain company is to create a blockchain that's capable of 1 billion transactions a second. He okay. says he's already got it up to 100,000 transactions a second. I don't know if anyone's validated that, but that's what he said. And he thinks by 2025, he will have a global blockchain that gives 1 billion, is capable of 1 billion transactions a second. At that point, he said what he said he envisaged when he first wrote the blockchain, that's, um, that's a matter of contention, um, will then come to fruition. You'll be able to open a global banking to everybody on the face of the earth at zero transactional cost then you will be able to, all the unbanked will be able to bank in terms at least of a value transmission. You may not get other stuff that you get from a bank like mortgage products and insurance products and all that, but even that could be added later. Uh, and I, I think that's quite, that is, I think that is quite a worthy objective. You may not believe that he's saying it and, you know, people have their own views of him. Right. Incidentally, let me say, you may want to edit this out, but he did say to me, because I said to him, Oh, good to meet you. I've heard a lot about you, etc. Um, what do you think about, you may have read my papers on trusted third parties in the rule of law. He said, well, actually, you're right, Stephen. When I, conceive, when I conceived of blockchain and Bitcoin, sure. I never thought, I never, I never said it should not be a, have a trusted third party behind it. And as I stood there with him, he said, I think I even referenced some of your papers. This is going back to the early 2000s right. or even 90s. And he brought out his smartphone and he went like that. And he showed me a paragraph from one of his early papers, pre the Bitcoin, where he'd referenced one of my papers. And as we stood there, he showed it me on his mobile phone. I thought, oh, OK. He said, you're absolutely right. You need trusted third parties for the rule of law. Otherwise, this becomes outlaw. It becomes outside the law, as you've just been saying. So right. it's an interesting point as to whether the idea of a decentralized 
trust, so-called trustless system is actually what humans even want. We, we, we need trusted third parties. The same principles when you, when you buy US dollar, you're buying the energies of 350 million US people to create the right. most strong economy in the world. Or, all right, second strongest now, maybe. And the biggest technology right. and the people that can put people on the moon. And I've been watching a fascinating program here in Burbank, where I am at the moment, about a world without NASA, reminding us of all the amazing spin-offs there have been from the NASA program. <laughs> which um, it's not just the Teflon frying pan. I mean, that's legendarily the one, but it's a mean bin. Even now there are things coming out of NASA research, which are going into society generally for the good of everybody in a way that still goes on. And that's what, that's what the US has done par, par excellence. I mean, it may have done it with um, all kinds of objectionable things around it and internal sure. dissent, but that's what, your, that's what that US dollar in your pocket represents. And I still say, if you go anywhere in the world and ask somebody, would you rather have a, a smartphone with a Bitcoin on it or $10 in your pocket? I know what the answer would be. Right. Yeah, nine <laughs> out of 10 people are going to want that $10 in their, in yeah. their, in their pocket. Even better than their own domestic currency, by the way, because every country has its own dollar-denominated dollar economy as well. Despite yeah. their own local uh, currency. Uh, yeah. I have to say, you know, what you just discussed uh, makes me warmly reminisce on that panel last year at D4A in uh, Barcelona with uh, myself, you, and uh, Dr. Dr. Craig Wright. And I would say for anybody, and I believe the footage is out on YouTube, not talking about myself, but uh, the intellectual heavyweights on that stage during that day that we had that panel, and I really had the privilege of moderating that with all of you, I would say to anybody, and when I find the link, I'll, I'll be sure to post it as well. Uh, please, you know, with an open mind, and by the way, with a lot of stamina and energy, watch that presentation between, some, between all of these individuals on stage, people who have a genuine vested interest, but also really have the academic pedigree and brain power to perhaps explain this better than almost anybody. And... When it comes to mass adoption, what is the mass message? And that's going to depend on who the messengers are as well. So, you know, I wanted to tell you, Dr. Castell, I'd like to do a multi-part series with you, perhaps, you know, sooner in, than later, because I think we've touched only on the tip of the iceberg today. And uh, by the way, as great and as rich as it was, I feel like we've just touched on the tip of the iceberg today. And I really want to see how deep the iceberg goes. And I'd be more than happy if not honored to do even something that's five six or seven parts uh where i where i can talk to, talk well, with you, you, and, you you know people know that you can set me going and i'll just go on talking till i run out of breath probably or you buy me a drink or something. i'll feed i'll feed the questions uh and and but, it, yeah we'll, i mean the, uh, the other thing i would dive in there i did this um um uh, uh, sort of fireside chat thing at the muse event in monaco at the beginning of may this year Right. The Metaverse Entertainment World Summit, as they call it. It's a, I think it's the second or third year they've run it. It's uh, put together by this legendary ha uh, Stephen Saltzman, who's the son of Harry Saltzman, who's the legendary creator of the Bond franchise of the first seven right. Bond films. Uh, he was the producer with Cubby Broccoli, the director. Yes, and in fact, yes. He, he moved to Monaco <laughs> because it's a low tax area. At the suggestion of this <laughs> a lot Grace, of benefits to Monaco, yes. Stephen is one of them. What you should have him on the he may not he may not appear, he's too well known. 
but um, he knows everybody and everybody knows him. And he's such a wonderful guy. I'm saying that and I don't care if you if you put this out. But he, he just said, oh, yeah, my dad was in London and 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 um, uh, you're really getting annoyed at having to pay a 96 percent top rate of income tax, which the Labour government had in back in the 70s. Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, and he, he was talking to Princess Grace one day, he said, and she said, oh, why don't you come and live in Monaco? We don't have any income tax. That's why we then moved here. And he I he um, I mentioned the um, you can maybe want to edit this out, but it's 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 about the man, really. He I mentioned the the house in Beaulieu, which is between Nice and Monaco that okay. David Niven had. And he wrote if you were if you read his two books, The Moon is a Balloon and Bring on the Empty Horses, chuckle every page. Wonderful. David Niven, an English actor that took Hollywood by storm in his day, one of some of the legendary actors. And he had this house in Beaulieu, and they used to call it Cirrhosis on Sea, as he disguised it. Looks like they were always having drunken parties, like 20 Great parties, I'd imagine. <laughs> and then I was saying this to Steve. I don't know how we got talking about it. He said, oh, well, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, David Niven, yeah, I knew him, yeah. But do you know who had the house before David? Who he bought it from? I said, no, Gregory Peck, he said. He bought that house from Gregory Peck. Really? Oh, yeah, I used to go and play with Gregory Peck's children in, in the garden of that house, says Stephen Saltzman, just in conversation. I mean, he's that kind of guy. He drops these things in without any, uh, any, any side to it at all. Anyway, he invited me because of the FTX thing and because of the bank failures as well and the opinions I've written on the banking system, which you might talk about in one of our... On one of I was going to say, irrespective I, I, of cryptocurrency, it's something I've studied and have contributed to over the last 40 years, and it's still not fixed. Um, and we could still tomorrow get a run. I mean, literally, it could be happening now as we speak. Oh, God, no, don't say that. What happened last time we were together? Um, but it could, you know, you could get a run on a major bank, and any major bank, unless the states, luckily, the big banks have got the state. Fed or whoever the bank, the bank behind them, but they may have to take a decision as to whether to let it fold or not. Uh, and that could happen any day because of the way banks are structured. They basically do bad business. They lend long and they borrow short. Um, so they have to repay short-term loans, whereas all their, all their lending is long. So if they get a liquidity crunch, they haven't got the money to, to meet depositors, depositors' claims, legitimate claims, and once once rumor get and the rumor is a thing. Once a rumor gets around, they can't. It becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that can happen to the biggest bank on this planet as well as the smallest tomorrow, any time, because that is their basic business model. Uh, and I've postulated that maybe we should go back to the original idea of a bank, was that it was a nice, secure place. You put your money into it, and you just expected to get it back. And all right, they took a small fee for holding it for you. That's it. That's their profit. They don't go and start lending it to people or investing in dodgy securitized mortgages with your money. They just keep it for you. That's what a bank is. That's the meaning of the word bank. If you want to do other stuff, then we call it other thing. And they have they have tried to build Chinese walls between the two. But nevertheless, the basic banking business is still based on lending long and borrowing short. And it's a fundamentally flawed business model. But anyway, so we could talk about that in greater depth. But you're absolutely right. The um, the, we, what we then got to talk about in Monaco was very quickly about AI and my ideas about digital democracy and digital capitalism, which was a paper I, I presented on the D4A Democracy for All conference in Barcelona. And I'm very firmly of the view, 
and maybe this is a good note to end on as a precursor to maybe one of our next uh, um, in, entirely enjoyable, I have to say, discourses. I don't know whether other people are enjoying it, but we're having a great time at it. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah, what the, the, my, my postulate that um, we are now moving rapidly to the world of government by algorithm. It's already happening. Governments are already using algorithms to take decisions for us, the citizen, when they're supposed to be there. That's what we've elected them to do. I mean, to govern is to choose, to govern is to take decisions. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And yet they're now sending this off to software systems, which they're using our taxpayers' money to pay people to do. So if you want to go online and claim some kind of benefit, you go through an asking process, which an AI program says, either computer says yes or computer says no, and you don't have a right of appeal to anybody. It's just the computer that's judged you, not, not a human anymore. And government is willingly putting that in at both local government level and central government level, all wholesale. So it's already happening. We haven't got a choice. It's already happening. Don't say, oh, no, I don't want to be governed by algorithm. Stuff. You're already being governed by algorithm. So that being the case, I'm saying, well, if, if politicians who are supposed to be elected to do that are they going to do it? And by the way, they're cognitively incompetent to, or sorry, let's say non-competent. Incompetent sounds worse than non-competent. I don't mean that. They are competent, but they're cognitively non-competent when it comes to computer software. Very few of them yes. have ever written a line of code or delivered a working system to anybody. Uh, you just don't go, IT people don't go into politics generally, and politicians haven't got the brain power to have done computer science at college and university. I like that, and that is so true, yes. Well, it is so true. I mean, actually, in the States, it's probably a bit better because you do get some congressmen that have had some uh, actual intellectual training and and university yes. training in in it and in it and and science and technology unusually so but in the uk it's like hen's teeth i suspect for the last 10 governments we've had i would say the last one we had was a lady called margaret thatcher who was a scientist she was a chemist and she was also a barrister right and she was also a woman if i were designing a robot to run the country Iron lady Take her as my my model, not necessarily with her policies, but in terms of her, in terms of her. Um, uh, I now lost you on my screen. Why is that? Oh dear. Can you hear me now? Uh, I can hear you. Can you still see me? I can see you and hear you loud. Oh, I seem to have lost my screen. I don't know where it is on here. Uh, that's weird. Uh, anyway, I'll press on. I can't see you now, but anyway, I can still talk. Um, so yes, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm evolving my um, proposition that we want direct government by algorithm. You, you remember that democracy is defined, was defined, still is defined as uh, government of the people, by the people, for the people. Doesn't mention politicians or political parties, absolutely don't come into the definition at all, ever. They. Uh, I mean, having elected parliaments and politicians to, to group themselves together to get elected is merely a, a use, has been a merely useful mechanism to deliver democracy. But democracy is still government of the people, by the people, for the people. If we can provide that directly for the people by algorithms, which the people have a right to consider and input to as to what the requirements of those algorithms should be, bias or no bias, whatever, 
and by the way, also have a mechanism for owning the algorithms, which might prove to be quite valuable assets in themselves. Sure. Those are my ideas. You have a right to govern the algorithm. property rights. That would be interesting. Yeah, a property right in the software and the data. Every citizen that is going to be governed by those algorithms ought to have input to the algorithms, either directly or through an oversight committee of experts. Let's put it on the table. We want experts running these, not non-experts, which are most politicians. That's my idea. Right. We can have a whole discussion about that. And I published a paper on it, and I'm quietly working on what I call my proposal for a cyborg algorithm and robot party, or CARP for short, uh, which will be a new political party designed to get rid of political parties. <laughs> I think there this would go. segue. It's a happy Sorry. note or unhappy note to end on. I don't know for today. Right. I think that would wonderfully segue into a follow-up episode. Excellent. Something along the lines of uh, democracy by algorithms. And yeah. listen, we are already living it. Uh, exactly. However, I don't think most really appreciate either the context no. or the nuance as far as to what extent and where that will be going. And, you know, we could also, if you wish, cover, you know, the other implications of FTX, why it is still highly relevant. And, you know, some of the other cases and, uh, you know, you could say subject matters and topics that you think are the most pressing right now. I would really yeah. like to have even just a separate let's, episode. Uh, let's talk on about that offline and put, be very happy to put together a sequence. I mean, on yes, the, on like the uh, algorithms, I mean, already, I think it's been the case for more than 10 years now that probably the great majority of trades in stock on the what we call the secondary stock exchange, i.e. the major stock exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange, the London Stock Exchange, et cetera, 90% um, of those trades have been taken by software. They're actually, uh, you yes. know, algo, algos do the trading. Algo traders, yes. Yeah, humans may set the, set the parameters, oversee it, and indeed, I think the New York Stock Exchange is the first one to introduce these so-called circuit breakers. Because the problem with that is all the different traders doing it, they tend to believe each other. So like sheep, if they start talking the market down, it goes down rapidly. Yes. Only because the software is believing the other software. So they introduce this circuit breaker idea where they throw a switch, tell everybody to reset their systems to zero again and start again. Um, because it is a known phenomenon that... Alg algorithmic trading systems will tend to mimic each other in the long run. So you have to keep resetting them. Uh, otherwise, they will force a market down or, or, or artificially up. Um, so that's happening already. And it's happened already in the financial world. I've already done an expert witness job um, recently. I can't say any names because it was a FINRA arbitration. So no names. I see. Um, but it was, um, it was on behalf of, a, of an individual trader that had had a managed fund by this one of the world's largest funds management companies that closed out a trade and lost him many thousands of dollars. He said wow. negligently, he alleged negligently, because clearly it was a, a stupid trade to do, given the trading factors that were operating and the, and the data. And he wanted to get disclosure of what, and he's pretty sure they were using software to do it and possibly algorithmic software that no human was involved with. So we went before the arbitrator and I wrote a report making the claim that we wanted discovery of their software. So I could then look at it and find and well and find out to what extent they knew what is even going on with their software. It was going to be an interesting case. Unfortunately, because it's an arbitration, which is much more informal than a court, you don't have court proceedings, you don't have the same rights of discovery to evidence. 
it's more consensual right uh, right. And um, it was the case that there was me and his lawyer and him against about six, three top executives and two firms of lawyers on the other side. And the poor old arbitrator didn't quite know what was going on, I don't think, in terms of software and algorithms. And we didn't get an order for discovery. I think they got a settlement in the end, as again, most of these things settle. But I, I was going to look forward to actually being able for the first time to get discovery of a major fund management company's algorithmic software and actually take an independent look at it and come to some conclusions, which might have been useful for the whole industry. Anyway, I'm sure there'll be others along. It's not going to be the last. Right. Well, I have to say, yeah. Dr. You know, Dr. Castell, it was, a, it, was a, it was an absolute you know, privilege and pleasure to have you on today to share really your wide breadth of experience and expertise on that because well, I think for a uh, and I'm uh, I'm ho hope I haven't been too garbled in places but I'm sure no not at all delicate curating and editing um and um <laughs> I'm I'm I always chuckle over I think one of the top movie stars was interviewed about some movie and they were saying it hasn't really done very well the boxer what do you think he said well, it's funny, you know, as an actor, I, I seem to remember we made a better movie than that. Because <laughs> often when you're making it and how it turns out post-editing um, is quite sure. different. Hopefully we might do the reverse here, the, 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 the glitchy bits you can curate and edit and polish for me, if you don't mind. Abs absolutely. And like I said, you know, Dr. Castella, I want you, I want you coming back because, you know, yeah. the, the messenger is going to be just as important as the message. So having, you know, the proper expertise and the proper articulation for a lot of this is going to be one of the recipes for making this work. And listen, Wait, well, you've had very a very happy, very happy to contribute to that. And just one little plug for me as a consultant. As yes, maybe, absolutely. Sending my, uh, you can publish my details. You've got my um, yes. email address and, and, and my, my UK phone number. I've got a, a local one here in Burbank at the moment, but won't have that forever. Um, then I'm very happy to discuss with anybody that may want guidance or opinion on what they may, I mean, even some of the crypto companies, the better ones that are really trying to foresee how they should get themselves into shape. I did put forward, a, as other people have done, a, a, a proposal for self-regulation of the crypto industry. I called it my CryptoSure trust model in a paper, in a Springer book. Um, it was published about two years ago now. And others have put them forward, but the industry really hasn't shown any appetite for getting together and creating a self-regulatory body, which they could still do and sure. head off um, imposed legislative regulation. The better ones in, you know, the ones that want to make this a, a serious part of regular community investing and projects. And I'd be very happy if anyone's interested in that to get together a um, a, a, a scheme, a, a prototype, protocol. If it gets the backing of two or three of the bigger ones, I think it could get. I think it could still get some momentum, perhaps even more so now in the face of all these legal actions that are going on. I just put that on the table. I'd be very happy to discuss that with anybody. I think that is some serious food for thought. Yeah. Yeah. Hope so. For sure. <laughs> okay. And Dr. Castell, thank you so much for coming on today and I'm looking forward to hosting part two with you, you know, very Excellent. soon. Me too. So we'll talk Thank more offline. Yes. Yeah.
Okay. We'll do, talk uh, more you, offline. Are you going to switch we'll me offline? We're offline now, are we? We're, we're, we're still no, uh, in, in about one moment.